Hi, this is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. On this episode, we begin, ironically, by discussing how to know when it's time to end a session. After that, Tom gets us talking about strategies to avoid asking for die rolls when really you shouldn't, and how to make critical failures more interesting than just no but worse. Something you hear a lot in terms of writing advice is that you should always start your story like at the last possible minute that you can. And with Delta Green, that usually means your agents are already on the ground. They're getting their briefing. They're going into whatever spooky crime scene you have this week. Is the inverse also true? Like, do you want to try and end the session or the scenario as soon as you can to try and keep some of the imagery? How do you guys decide when you're going to just call an end to a session? Uh, When all the players are dead. Agents, excuse me. When all the characters are dead. So I gave too much away there. I was going to say, well, you're rushing to the end, aren't you? You're really living living the ethos. One thing that I've noticed I do is that if the players reach a point where there's no more challenge, like no one can reasonably stop them from doing what they want to do, then then I usually just gloss over the rest of it because uh, I don't really feel like narrating, you know, another hour of them basically just, just going through their actions one by one to execute the plan if there's no real plausible way given the narrative that was set up that they could fail or the the state of the game world and i don't know if i should do that because it's not always 100 percent satisfying but the alternative is laboriously going through every interaction even though the outcome is basically predetermined with regards to letting the players off the hook i was actually thinking about this today and i think one thing that i am annoyed by is not so much always that the, the players just want to kill everybody that they think that's the solution to everything but that they do it in such an absolutely uncreative unimaginative and undiscreet way like that everyone just wants to roll firearms no one's like oh i'll cut the brakes on his car or make it look like a gas leak or anything that like makes it look like an accident or makes it look like someone else did it they don't try to frame people or you know trick trick somebody make it look like natural causes. No, it's always got to be firearms is the highest skill on my character sheet and I've I've adapted to violence, so I'm going to shoot him. And I think that you're correct to identify enforcing consequences as a way to mitigate that behavior, where if you're going to murder everyone, at least use your fucking imagination, please. Yeah, some more imaginative ways of killing people than just 9mm retirement are always welcome. Play it like it's Hitman. Uh, Acting out the consequences of player's action is a big concern because if you end it too quickly then yeah you can really avoid some of that both from the challenge standpoint and the drama standpoint i part of what i was thinking is actually pretty sympathetic to what you were saying melon about the outcome is already predetermined and if we just keep going then it's gonna get a little dull that way because i find a lot of times when i when i feel like i let a session run too long it's usually for that reason it's sort of Any fun from it kind of becomes more about the role playing between players rather than kind of following through. Yeah, and if they're if they're doing a good job and having fun there, then you can absolutely let them keep going. But one of the things that we've um, we've identified, and I think everyone here was here for this segment, we've identified as a problem with running games online is that typically when there's nothing, when the players aren't doing anything, it doesn't become an exercise in rich character development. It becomes dead air. Yeah, that's the thing. It sort of feels like there's this space with nothing to fill it. And so 
it's fun doing the role playing, but the role playing uh, kind of steps up to the plate to fill that space. I do think, though, that there have been times when I've been tempted to cut a session short because it just really felt it was going nowhere. But because I was patient with it and let the players dictate the course of action, they really surprised me and took it to somewhere that was really fun. And I'm glad I didn't just cut it off on a low note. Because one of the big problems with having a shitty ending is that even if the rest of the game was really good, people are going to remember it being really shitty. Yeah, for sure. That makes those turns all the more satisfying, I think, when things are going a little slow and then suddenly it picks up and now everybody's on the edge of their chair waiting to see what happens next. I think it's more just a measure of pacing, I guess. Is That's the hardest thing from the actual sitting at the table part of a GM is keeping the pace of the game moving. Uh, you can let it ebb and you can let it uh, accelerate, but you need to kind of have a handle on it. I think the thing that... If I recall correctly, the thing that initially prompted me to think about this topic, and I might have even been one who put it on the list, I don't remember, is that I've run games, this was in the distant past, I've run games where the players have either achieved a win or fail state, but they had no way, their characters had no way to know that. So they persisted in continuing the investigation, even after it was impossible that anything they did could affect the outcome. So I had a scenario where uh, the villain was or that the the target of the operation was a witch who could swim around underwater but was confined to a specific geographic area because she had buried her heart in underneath one of the uh, buildings in the flooded town and at the end of the scenario the fail state is that she finds her heart and then she swims away into the ocean and the problem with this is that once she leaves there's no way the players can know that she's gone and so they continued searching for another half hour, and I had no good, credible way to signal to them, your investigation has... Um, the problem has, has solved itself. The problem has solved itself. Well, then, And then one of the other, one of the players suggested to me afterwards, you know, you could start have like, like mauled bodies washing up on the beach. But then the problem with that is that doesn't signal the investigation's over. That signals the investigation has moved outside the immediate play area. Go here and resume it. Well, what to me would signal the investigation is over is the, the agents go, okay, we, we keep searching for the witch. And then the handler goes, all right, you continue to search for the witch. How long do you continue to search for the witch? Oh, that number of days. Okay. You still haven't found her. Do you keep searching? Okay. How long do you keep searching? And they just keep doing that until they say we, we give up because we've clearly lost her. Or you could even just say you continue to search and, uh, long enough that you are convinced that you've lost the trail. Yeah, because the thing is, giving the agents the ability to like declare win or fail states does not always motivate the right kind of behavior. Because whenever I, whenever I, I, I don't, I don't want to just encourage people to say, "All right, we're clearly not getting anywhere. We give up." Because what if in a future session they just get stuck and then they assume there's no more content and they say, "All right, we're done." Or I even worry that it'll encourage the classic like call up Delta Green and demand that someone else take care of it because you're not getting anywhere call the case officer and demand a kill team be sent. But you are the kill team. I think that I'm more on the side of your out of what your second suggestion, which is you're out of character. You guys are done here. Yeah. You conduct an exhaustive search and conclude that you've lost the trail and you all go home. I'm sure it's easier in a long standing game where rather than being composed of discrete scenarios that have beginnings, middle and end, you just move into the next section of the narrative that's all continuous but I guess even then, there are encounters that need to be broken off without exhaustively detailing every action that takes place there. Is that that different, though? That's the question I was asking. Maybe I it's think, not yeah. that different. Maybe it's sort of this... I mean, it seems to me like 
from from a game design standpoint, there's not too much different between a one-off investigation and uh, a step of a larger investigation, except that one has a connecting point at the beginning and the end to a different one. I think there are there are differences, if not in how it's structured, than in how you get it across at the table. Uh, I'm thinking with a longer campaign, you can do something with a little more, like end your scenarios or your sessions on a little bit more of a cliffhanger because you know everybody's coming back next week to pull on the loose threads that can didn't get resolved this time around. Whereas if you've just got a one shot, that really needs to be more of a self-contained thing. And you want to have, if not a bow on every little question, you want to have it be more closed off at the end. Leaving loose ends in one-off scenarios, I've found tends to just annoy the players because then they're like, well, we didn't figure this out. And I haven't yet found a good way to say, well, that's your own damn fault. It's like the watchers in the skies where... There are a million questions all designed not to be answered, and you're supposed to lie <laughs> and tell them, well, maybe if you were better at the game, you would have found them. Yes, exactly like that. But then I think that also proves your point, because people either adore Watchers in the Sky or they want to burn every copy of it in existence. Shout out to Ross Payton. What's Watchers in the Sky? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it is a part of a Trail of Cthulhu mini campaign. Uh, which actually I don't want to say too much more about because I might be running it uh, for Halloween. Oh, okay. Yeah, then I am one of the people who like it, but it is very divisive. To bring the loose threads thing back to how do you know when to end the scenario? Um, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is I don't really mind ending a scenario if there are still loose threads, so long as some kind of resolution has been reached, or if, all, if failing everything else, uh, if any kind of resolution is now impossible. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Yeah, I think it's also part of just how possible do the players still think it is to go after those leads? Because if you just... Yeah, and I mean, sometimes they won't at all, and that's fine. That's, that's their choice. You know, you can't... Uh, I, I I am okay with having loose ends. I don't... I try and I try and walk that fine line between, you know, giving enticing clues and, and lore and stuff to reward exploration and investigation, but also not giving away too much. That's I struggle with that. One thing that I was just thinking about uh, today or maybe a couple days ago is how the way that the game is set up where I, w- I was just talking earlier about how, you know, it annoys me when the players go to the NPC handler or case officer and demand all these things be done for them. But on the other hand, I do wonder if maybe that mentality is what is driving the players to kill everyone and break everything. Because if the players think, all right, there's not going to be resources to check up on this person. I'm not going to be able to you know, in-universe, make sure that they don't do bad stuff. The only way to get rid of this problem is murder, because that's the only thing that that does not require an additional investment of personnel and resources. Because I've, I've definitely been in situations where the players would have probably been happy to just check up on someone every once in a while, but because they felt that, like, you know, we're not going to be able to get personnel on that, it's, uh, it's imperative that we just clip this person right now. That's, it's, that's really it, insightful, actually. Um... Because you're right. I've also had a lot of situations where one of the solutions was we just need to check up on this this guy or this family or this uh, burned down lot in a town in upstate New York every once in a while and make sure no one's fucking with it. But then nobody wants to do that because the players all want to just wash their hands and, of it entirely and go on to the next thing. Nobody wants to 
nobody wants to take it upon themselves to make sure that lead stays buried. Even if taking it upon themselves requires no additional player investment, even if it's just, oh, my character is going to check up on this every every couple of weeks or so. He's going to set a reminder on his calendar, or he's going to set up Google alerts or something. Nobody does that. I wonder why that is. Well, it's because um, as far as, like, like if, if we're fostering the mentality of complete self-reliance and so on, then uh, the players aren't going to be able, aren't going to think, like, I can, you know, this this can just be something that the agency sets up. They're gonna think, you know, this is either like 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 you said, the investment resources, or that's or it's just like the the other thing I was thinking of is I had a I had a, a thing that I ran once where the players um, were supposed to be tracking a character who or they, they were they were supposed to be figuring out who was receiving a suspicious package, and so rather than tailing the car carrying the package, they immediately just dogpile the guy, beat the shit out of him, arrest him, take the package, interrogate the shit out of him, and through a very circuitous route, eventually find where the package was going. And I was thinking, why didn't they tail him? And then I remember the actual tailing mechanics by rules as written in Delta Green are roll stealth or drive, whichever's lower. So if any, if those players knew the mechanics, then they were probably thinking, there's no way we can succeed at this. We need to come up with a different plan because if we tail him, we're just going to lose him right away. So it's that similar It's that similar thing of automatically writing off an option because you assume that it has no chance of success. What's interesting about that is that play, a player who is less familiar with those written mechanics would ask the handler, hey, can I do this? Hey, can I, what, can I, can I tail this car? And the handler might say, yeah, okay. Um, like, for instance, when I rewrote A Mind is a Terrible Thing to Waste to, you know, expand on the initial fact-finding part of the investigation, I had it written in there that it's fairly easy to surveil the suspect because she's gotten into a pattern, she's complacent, she's not expecting to be watched. And it's only if the agents do something really obvious or really fuck up that she notices and then starts changing her her, her, her patterns. And I feel like that would be the default state for most NPCs who aren't. Like, for instance, for a courier who's just going about his job, doesn't know he's delivering anything suspect. He's not going to be watching to see if anybody's following him. People don't tend to do that unless they have a reason to be suspicious. So I feel like that would be the default state of surveilling anybody. And then you then go to the actual surveillance rules if your target has some reason to be suspicious and alert. Know what I mean? So that's almost a case of where having um, an intimate knowledge of the mechanics it does you a disservice. Because you think, well, you know, this is how it's going to work and I don't want this to happen, so I should find a different approach. That happens all the time, I think, where the but because because I, I see that a lot with the player will ask to well, maybe, maybe this is the inverse the player will ask to do something and the gm will say all right roll this skill and the player will say oh never mind because they immediately realize that they don't have any chance of success at the thing they're trying to do and so they come up with an all they want to immediately back out because they didn't think it would require that particular skill or that particular role that's why as a handler i always try to entertain if that player then goes well what if i do this instead to accomplish this goal it's one of the reasons I, I fucking hate Pathfinder. I'll give him one, you know, give him a freebie. Because every time I fucking play Pathfinder, we always get into some fucking situation where where everyone's like, "Oh, we're gonna sneak in," and I'm like, "I have like negative six stealth and negative four bluff, guys," and they're like, "No, it'll be great." And then immediately we go in, and the NPCs all surround my character, and I have to roll bluff until I fail, and then we get in a fight. And it's like, we could have just fucking skipped this stupid shit and just... Well, that's because Pathfinder is a combat game, not a sneaky game. It's because Pathfinder is a bad game. That's also true. But then, um, so are a lot of games I like. You can actually build a fairly competent stealth party in Pathfinder. You just have to build for it. What you have to do is... You, you have just to have to be the... everyone. Well, is... no, you have to take the teamwork feat, which lets you um, 
everybody who has the feet and is being stealthy, they all roll. And then whoever rolls the highest on the die, you take that result for everybody and then add each individual modifier to it. Wait, it only works if everyone has the feet? feet? Yeah. Well, what you just said, that it only works if everyone has the feet. Yeah. So the teamwork, I don't think the person who wrote that knew what teamwork was. No, that's that the people the person who wrote teamwork feats doesn't understand how teamwork what teamwork means. But I mean, honestly, I would just if I were to rewrite Pathfinder, I would just make that a basic feature. That should be a friggin' feature in Delta yeah, Green. Yeah. You have well, I mean, that's that is that is a thing in Delta Green. If you're working collect collaboratively as a team. Well, no, because that's only if the that's only if the thing is benefited by having multiple people. If it's harmed honestly, by multiple people, you roll with the lowest one. I Which, think if you have one Navy SEAL you know, living shadow expert stealth man coaching a bunch of other guys through the jungle. I think you should use his stealth role. That's what I've been doing because not because not because I care about realism at all, but just because otherwise it makes stealth basically a solo game. So one guy goes and plays Delta Green while the rest of the group waits patiently. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. And and Gumshoe has a version of that role. And I think in all their example text, it's always the example is people trying to sneak through a fence or onto a base or something where as long as you have one point in that skill, you can spend one point and use somebody else's skill. And if you don't have the point, you can still get the benefit, but it increases that person's difficulty. It's a good mechanic. More games should use it. Fewer games should be Pathfinder. Also, Pathfinder 2nd Edition is garbage, and so is Starfinder. Don't at me, bro. That doesn't seem like the most controversial opinion in the world. No, it's really not. It's really not. Fucking trash. So anyway, circle back. What do we circle back to? I feel like we got lost in a rabbit hole here. I think we did get lost in a little bit. Of, well, we started talking about mechanics and how that discourages you from pursuing certain courses of action, I guess, if you know the mechanics well enough. And then we went into mechanics specifically to grind our gears. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um, circle back to uh, players getting frustrated, giving up because they run out of leads. Um, not a great place to end a session. But I mean, sometimes you don't really have a choice, do you? I've thought about like um, just having the session end if I have to say a certain number of times, okay, what do you do? Or, you know, would anyone <laughs> like to say or do anything? Either either ending the session right there or increasing all the NPC chances to hit. I mean, I, I would I would go with your first one. If, if, if everybody at the table is so stumped or just like for real life reasons, just not able to focus then I, I would I would absolutely be like, all right, let's pack it in, maybe try this again, maybe not. See how you guys feel. Yeah, turn it into a compliment to yourself. You've created such a a brain bender of a <laughs> climax that they well, need just the like, rest of the week to think about what they're gonna do. Yeah, what what I'm thinking is more just like there's no point trying to trying to squeeze blood from a stone, you know? If 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 your players are just banging their heads against a wall and they don't know how to proceed, then then I don't really know what else you can do other than say, you know, all right, uh I guess we we end there. And I mean, I'm okay with that. If I was a player, I would be, I would probably be annoyed about that. I would, I would honestly, I'd blame myself as much as I'd blame the scenario author at that point because I'd go, well, obviously, clearly, I missed something. Why didn't I think of you know X Y Z? But I could also see myself going, what is this fucking Sierra adventure game moon logic? How was I supposed to know that? But I, I haven't, I have been on the receiving end of that, and and I have been on the giving end of of that that sentiment the what the fuck is this moon logic thing and, and sometimes it just happens and that's just a natural consequence of uh, an investigative kind of game just sometimes you're just the player is on a completely different wavelength from the scenario author or the handler or both and that it's just not making the necessary connections because 
they just don't think that way. And there's not really not really anything you can do about that. It's one of the dangers you 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 run the risk of when you play a game like this that isn't just a hex crawl. I mean, the Siri adventure games are notorious for that, but you know they were kind of deliberately obtuse. Also, both times I've done escape rooms, the puzzles have been more obtuse than difficult. Will, did I ever tell you about um, the claymation puzzle adventure game, The Neverhood? It's a game that charts a very different path from Sierra Adventure Games while simultaneously managing to be just as frustrating and obtuse. You know, with the combination of the phrases claymation adventure game and the word neverhood, I do remember hearing about this. I have a picture in my mind of it. I don't know anything else about it, though. So Neverhood is a is a, a game by Doug Tenaple and DreamWorks Interactive. It is a claymation adventure game for the early Windows boxes. And it is like... It, it, so, so it's very different from a Sierra adventure game because it has no... Um, and it has no inventory puzzles, no combining items, and no way to die other than a single thing in the game, which is very clearly marked as don't touch this or you will die. <laughs> but... Because of the way the game is set up, it still manages to be just as frustrating and obnoxious because there is so much in the game that depends on you just remembering shit that you're not going to know is important when you see it. And then you're going to have to remember where you saw it, and then you have to go all the way back and write it down. And you're not going to know what changes when you do certain things in the game world. And so you're going to have to go all over the place and turn every stone and so it's the equivalent of the inventory puzzle where you use every item and every item, but it's spread across the entire game world. And there's some Oof. shit on this. And so some of the puzzles in the game, mo- most of the game's puzzles are like, rather than being about moving around the game world and manipulating items, are about uh, manipulating a specific set of items. Like uh, there's a sliding block puzzle and a puzzle where you have to make um, some pipes create a song and uh, you have to like guide stuff through a maze. It's it's it manages to simultaneously have its own logic and still be incredibly annoying. It's like every single one of Doug Tenaple's games. Every part of it is fantastic, except the gameplay. Except for Boombots, because every part of Boombots is horrible. There's no um, ending to that other than an interesting contrast to the obnoxious Sierra game logic. Oh, but I got another. I got another bit there. Um, whenever I think <laughs> about old school adventure games, I always think of the old like the old pre-reboot Doctor Who where they would go for, they would like visit every location 10 times and talk to every NPC 10 times and use every item and every object. And it took them like six episodes to do anything. And I was thinking every day when I was watching those, this is just like an old adventure game. There's just, they're just, they're constantly backtracking and forever puzzled about what the hell is supposed to be happening. I mean, yeah, they have the the same conversations over and over. And sometimes some of them get killed. I'm trying to think of a particularly obnoxious thing in a, like a Sierra Adventure game because I played most of them. I can't think of an obnoxious one, but I can think of one from Space Quest Four. Space Quest uh, is is um is notorious for that. Um, I want to say that uh, all the King's Quest games. I don't remember if those were Sierra, but they had they were yeah they had their own. Some of them were really bad. Kettle of horse shit. Oh yeah, but no, there was one bit in like Space Quest Four. There's like this little inner desert bunny you find near the beginning of the game used to solve some stupid puzzle. Uh, and then later on, you get like ambushed by time cops, and you got like seconds to f- to click the correct item on the correct pixel. And I'm just like saving and loading and saving and loading. Like, what the fuck do I do? I'm going through all the items, and I'm like, eventually, I get to click to use Energizer Bunny on Time Cop, and the dialogue box that comes up says, "Don't use the Energizer Bunny on the Time Cop. He might have a hair trigger." Nice. The I think the ma- the main adventure <laughs> game, yeah, main adventure game that sticks in my memory besides. Um, 
neverhood from being a kid is one called uh stupid invaders which was very much in the sierra school of there's no fucking logic to anything and anything will kill you it was basically just sustained by its stupid art style and it's very um vulgar uh i'm trying to think of, of a single like clever joke from that game and i think it was all pretty fucking dumb honestly man yeah. i had so much nostalgia for all these games but they're just really yeah. not that good Kings Quest V is pretty good. I don't think I, I don't think I actually played any of the Kings Quest it's games. The one where Roger Wilco actually gets to like command a spaceship. It's a garbage ship because he's a janitor. But um, what what probably what everybody tended to do with those old games is they would get stumped, they get frustrated, they'd close it out, they they leave it alone for like days or weeks, and then come back to it and try something new. And you can't really do that in a tabletop setting. If you leave the table because you're stumped or frustrated, like chances are pretty good you're not going to be coming back to the same game next week. You're going to come back and do something different and be like, yeah, I, got, I, I have nothing. But I mean, like, it's, you might come back and go, hey, I have an idea. And then, like, you know, get, back, get back together and, like, try the thing, see if it works, or even just be just talk to the handler between sessions and say, hey, here's my idea. Would this work? And the handler goes, yeah, that'll work. And then you go, all right, well, I'll see you guys next week. Know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, I uh, am trying to think of cases where I've ended in a situation like that and then the players have come back and um, really wowed me. Yeah, I can't think of one where that's happened either, but uh, the possibility exists. I Certainly anyone who's listening and ends up playing in a game with me, which it will be like nobody, you know, feel free to try that. Um, but uh, the question of when to end a scenario isn't just what do you do when the players are frustrated. So we've talked about players being frustrated, not... N- being stumped and not having and not knowing how to proceed. That's one way you can end a scenario. Um, we talked about and how we talked about sort of natural conclusions where you close off the main threads and maybe leave a few hanging. What other options really are there other than you solve the scenario or you don't and run out of steam? And I'll I'll include I'll include uh, failure conditions that are solving the scenario. That's a solution, even if not a good one. The the scenario is then resolved even if the outcome is the world ends. So I mean, what are the types of what other ways are there that a scenario could end other than running out of steam or reaching a natural conclusion? Uh, some I've had scenarios end because the player characters themselves concluded that the situation they were in were unwinnable and they needed to scrub the mission. So that's very um, not very common, but I've been on both sides of it where I've I've done it and I've had players do it. I feel um, like that's a valid choice um, from from the player perspective. Like, I'm, try, I feel, I'm like, trying to think of how how because I because I've been in cases where I've thought it was completely sensible, and I've been in cases where it really annoyed me because it felt like the characters got scared and ran away before they before playing the game. Yeah, I mean, in in in, in each each of those is a different kind of thing. Like uh, deciding to scrub the mission and withdraw, I think is 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 is, is always I think a valid option. Um, and if if the handler agrees that that is a good thing to do, then then there you go, no problem. And then if if the handler thinks it's if the, if, you, if you as the handler feel more like it's a case of like you just said, Max, the the agents get scared and run away, then well, you come back to my classic line of what do you do when the player refuses to engage with with the scenario? Okay, your player your character goes off and does his thing and lives happily ever after. Roll a new character who will engage with the scenario. So if the agents get scared and run away, you say, all right, roll up the agents who come in to look at to investigate after those agents run away. And if they want to roll up, you know, a kill team, then fucking let them. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I have a problem with that if it happened every time. But if it happened once where something really, really scary happened and the agents ran away and the handler said, okay, roll up the, the follow-up team that comes in to clean it up. And then the agents rolled up a kill team. Like, I'd, I'd be okay with that. That seems like a natural consequence. Yeah, I um, am trying to think of 
how like what and in, in what circumstances I'm I I would consider reason because I because I've because I've been I've been in scenarios that I've played where um, every indicator we were getting was that we were compromised and we had to 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 leave the AO because there was nothing else we could do and my concern is that if that becomes the rubric for whether the agent should continue a mission or not then I think a lot of operations are going to get are going to get wiped before they even begin because in actual tradecraft if you get made you stop the fucking mission and you send somebody else you send a fresh face yeah um well here's the thing right the other side of that is if that becomes a recurring theme then people who are writing scenarios and running games should stop giving those signs so liberally know what i mean like if the problem is that every indication you get is that you're compromised you're blown you're seconds away from death then naturally you're going to respond with all right we get the fuck out i don't feel like that's an unreasonable response so the way to avoid that as the handler or the scenario author would be to dial that back a little bit that was a huge problem with old delta green i felt was that it was very easy to attract the attention of a conspiracy with infinite power that would never stop chasing you. Ah, yes, yes, indeed. And I'm thinking of a very specific scenario, which is Night on Alice Head Mountain, whereby if um, through a particular set of decisions, uh, Majestic does come snooping around. And when I run that scenario, I'm always very careful to make it clear that Majestic is in town, but they don't know that you're here. They are not looking for you. So you are still clear if you keep your heads down. In, and every, I, I've, I've yet to have a, case, a instance where I've run that scenario and the agents have panicked and fled. They've always gone, "Oh shit, the suits are in town. We'd better be on. We'd better be extra careful." But we got to keep looking into this. That's the good yeah. side. They do. The bad side is there's a line of descriptive text in Countdown in the Outlook section that says, "If you do any investigation of this totally irrelevant front company, Majestic gets your number immediately and sends a team to to black bag you." Well, I'll just put Pagan Publishing on blast and say that's bad scenario design. I think there was a lot of stuff in the old game that was either written from a, a fiction-first approach like that, or like a wouldn't-it-be-cool approach, or a demonstrate-that-the-bad-guys-are-really-dangerous-and-not-fucking-around approach. And it was less from a perspective of what's like the cool interactive thing to do here. I think there's cases where you can definitely see them responding to playtest feedback and creating really cool interesting content and stuff like um how you can you can recruit cointel informants in um dead letter or the notes from the playtest of owls mountain where they talked about what the players did there i thought that was super cool yeah that was really good okay so yeah so retreat in the face of overwhelming opposition i i, I still I, i'm still coming down on saying that's that's a that's a and not an unreasonable decision for the players to make and more on the case of it's the onus is on the handler to make it clear whether the overwhelming opposition has its steely gaze yet locked on the souls of the agents or not and if not that make it clear that you're still okay to operate if you're careful and if you do then my experience is that most most teams will then start being extra careful or at least sufficiently careful because you're being too cautious and too skittish and too unwilling to take any risks is another thing we've talked about in the podcast. And again, that also the onus also comes on the handler there to make it clear that to make it clear when a potential course of action will result in consequences. I just ran a game um, of Delta Green in which there were some attempts to stealth past a team of Navy SEALs. And so what I did was I would call for a stealth roll and then they would fail because no, none of the study professions have very much in stealth. But then what I would say is, okay, so you're, you're undetected where you are right now. You can remain undetected here 
or you can run to that building, but you will be seen. And then that happened a couple of times. And in one case, the one of the one agent was like, yeah, okay, I'll stay where I am. We'll find another way around. And in the case, the guy was like, no, it's fucking book it. And both players were comfortable with that choice because that choice, that was their choice to make. You know, they were aware of all the consequences. They were aware of all the options. They made an informed decision to take the risk or not, rather than having the risk forced upon them. There's a lot of stuff that I say that's nasty about Call of Cthulhu, but I think that the one one of the concepts that I really like from that game is the pushed role, because the pushed role is what you just said. It's you are choosing to attempt this thing, knowing that there will be consequences if you fail, rather than, you know, um, like I said earlier, where you do something and it requires a, a skill role and you say, oh, no, I'm going to back out of that. It's turning that on its head and saying, um, well, I mean, I guess, I guess it's, I guess it's more like uh, you are given the option to to back out when you, rather than face the ugly consequences of continuing your current course of action, as opposed to stuff where like you fail the same, you 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 say you want to go somewhere, you immediately have to make a stealth check, you fail, and then you're discovered. Which is one of the reasons why people don't want to um, use stealth mechanics at all. Well, it's it's one of the reasons why people don't ever want to do um, undercover operations because they think that they're going to put their character in a dangerous situation, fail a single disguise role, and then immediately get mulched by the enemy. So, and there's no reason that that couldn't apply to skills other than stealth. So maybe that is one technique that could be used to avoid situations where the scenario ends because the players get stumped. Because if they're getting stumped because they are anticipating consequences, well, at least let them make, take a shot at it. No harm, no foul if they fail. Or, you know, they get to choose to accept the consequences and push on. Maybe that's one way of getting around the roadblock. Um, so what are... Can you guys think of any examples you've had of scenarios you've run where you've reached a point where you weren't entirely sure whether you should call it or not? When I was running the adventure where the players were investigating the um, green box in the basement of the single room occupancy, once the players figure out the monster's weakness, there kind of isn't jack shit the monster can do against them. So there was almost no point in the only the only reason to narrate the whole monster hunt would have been to give the players the satisfaction of killing it with but but like they would literally just have been the players roll whatever skill it takes until it um, until it dies because the way that scenario was set up it could not escape and it could not attack them. Now was there a point prior to the team discovering the monster's weakness where you were sitting there going I don't know if this is going to progress I kind of feel like I should call this. No, I absolutely thought that. Um, the team was making progress throughout the whole thing. That's well, good because because there was a there was I'm not going to air this, but there was a point where I didn't. So that's good. That's good that we were making you can progress. Air, you, even can, you can publish that. That's fine. Uh, I think that you you were the one who discovered the monster's weakness without even having to make any uh, sciences. You just used your magic. True, actually, I did. Yeah, yeah. I just I was just like, yeah, see what happens. You just you were just annoyed because one of the dudes was acting weird and you thought he was just being a dick out of character. Yes, but it turned out that he was actually had a very a very sound reason that I gave him to do that. It turned out well in the end. I was initially frustrated, but it ended up being a great scenario that I enjoyed playing. Yeah, that scenario was based on a scenario by the Mothership guy, because even though I have some real bones to pick with that game, there are lots of good uh, scenarios and other content for it. Tom, can you think of an instance of a scenario where you weren't, you've, you weren't sure whether to end it or not? Uh, I'm thinking of the one that immediately comes to mind for me is baby on board a shotgun scenario from a couple years back you ran melon oh i know who who wrote that one who was it that wrote that it's on the tip of my tongue gene wolf right. yep. yes 
but I thought there was an interesting kind of tension there because we kept looking into all these different leads trying to figure out like is all this bullshit like is there actually something here or not because there was a lot of semi spooky stuff but not anything that really held together I'm just now realizing as you say that that that's actually a really big problem because it fosters all the problems that I've just been discussing and I'm also realizing that because of that I need to I might need to junk another thing that I'm working on, actually, because you just kind of expose that it has exactly the same problem. I can tell you, I'll tell you guys about it. Um, I'm, I'm working on a scenario right now where it's about uh, um, a psychic man who can trigger, who can uncover your repressed memories of bad things that happened to you in the past. So he can, he can make you relive all your childhood trauma, tar- all your childhood trauma, and your childhood tarmac. And he. How many roads must a man walk down? He's a problem because he gets to some people and he does uh, this memory refresher and they remember like, you know, Worm Cult and the All-Father Cult of the Gate and the Key. And they remember all this shit that's Delta Green related. And so Delta Green says we have to solve the the mystery, figure out whether these people were actually ritually abused by wizards, figure out what the fuck's up with this guy and why he's revealing all this stuff. And it turns out that the guy is just getting visions and psychically implanting them in people. So there's not actually any, like, you know, demon cults or anything. It's just all in his head, and he's giving it to other people. But the problem is that the players are just going to keep digging until they find something. And if they don't find something, they're going to assume that they're pursuing the wrong leads. They're never going to come to the conclusion that it's all just bullshit. That, I think, now that I think of it, is actually a flaw with... um, a scenario that a lot of people think, thought was really good called Straight Out of Crompton, where because of the social contract of Delta Green, I used to frame it in I used to frame it in terms of it's a violation of the social contract because the players want to see something spooky. Now I'm thinking it's a violation of the social contract because the lesson it's designed to teach is give up is give up and leave if you don't find anything unnatural, which is not a lesson that I want to teach. I think it's okay if you want to deliberately make that a source of tension, like just hint at spooky stuff without necessarily showing something explicit that they have to go on. And then it becomes sort of, I don't know, like the moral judgment of, are you willing to do terrible things to an innocent person because of what might be true? But if you don't want that, then you've got to be really explicit, I think, about uh, contradictions, like places where the narrative does break down and kind of lead the players to wait, this doesn't make sense. Have we been fed a bunch of lies? Pack of lies, if you will. Indeed. Yeah. I think you've just got to be a little more assertive in kind of pushing that narrative. If you, if that is the centerpiece of the scenario and you want the players to get there, because like you said, it's hard to kind of grapple with that negative space. I read a blog post recently about fudging your die rolls, and that's not what I want to talk about, though. The most salient point to me was that fudging your rolls is kind of a symptom of calling for dice rolls when you shouldn't. And for me, the biggest reason I call for a dice roll and then regret it is because someone rolled a fumble that I was not prepared to deal with. So I was curious if you guys have any principles you have for like dealing with fumbles. Do you have any go-to results for that sort of thing? Well, first of all, I think you've hit on something really important, which is I, I think uh, a wise a wise man I think said this once. Uh, you should never 
ask for a die roll unless you're prepared to deal with the consequences. Maybe I just made that up. Oh yeah, that is something I've learned the hard way. I have multiple times had people either critically succeed or fumble rolls that were just kind of filler, and I realized, oh shit, I don't have anything for this. So, what, I mean, how can you not be pre- prepared for a failure roll or for a fumble roll? Like, what do you mean? Well, that's the thing. It's just like it's a roll, I guess. Sometimes just to fill up time. Like, I'm not sure what would happen, so I'm going to have you make the roll while I decide what would happen, and then it comes out with a really extreme result, and I realize, oh, now I have to do a really extreme thing for this. I have to. Uh, I mean, I I, th- I think you're right. I'm just pushing because I want to try to get you know eke out the uh, the truth here. But I mean, a fumble is just a failure, but worse. So you know what would happen in a failure? You just make that you know times make it to eleven. Right, but that's the thing. Sometimes I just freeze up, and I'm not sure in the moment. So as a I guess as a reflex, I will call her reaction when the smarter thing is just to say yes, that happens, or no, that doesn't happen. Uh, speaking for myself, I know I have been in situations where a player has done something, and I am hesitant to give a firm yes or no because I honestly had not considered that. Or sometimes, frankly, sometimes I've been in a position where a player wants to do something and they're having a really hard time of it. They're having like a bad streak or they're in a, in a sour mood and I just don't want to make it worse. So I don't want to say, no, you can't do that. So I say roll instead. And, you know, I I tend to immediately regret that because then it results in something I wasn't expecting. I I have a caveat for that. So uh, someone says, can I do this thing? And you don't have an opinion one way or another. So you tell them to roll for it. I don't know. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because uh, you're giving them a grammar lesson. No. So instead of just saying, sure, roll for it, say, how are you going to do that? How are you going to get that information? How are you going to accomplish this thing? Tell me what you're doing. Because okay, yeah. it, it, it's like, you know, the thing you've talked about before. I roll human at the guy. All right, well, what are you looking for? How are you hoping to ascertain the thing that you're looking for? Well, maybe another question to ask, rather than how are you going to go about that? If a player throws an unexpected action at you, maybe what you should ask instead is, what's your end game here? What are you trying? What's the goal you're trying to achieve? Right. And the, the whole reason that I, I bring up the, the how are you going to do that is because it, um, I've talked about it before, but Apocalypse World, uh, in it, it says to do something, do it. So instead of, you know, saying I'm going to roll skill, you have to say, uh, I want to look into this guy's finances or I want to see if there's anything in this guy's uh, garage. So the things there, you know, well, you're going to need to get his tax paperwork. So how are you going to do that? Or, you know, I'm going to need to break into his garage or, or whatever. Right. So to, to, to do something, you got to do it. You ask people how to do it. And then you have basically uh, you, you can visualize or you can kind of think about what the consequences are going to be for failure. Because sometimes a failure is just a failure. You know, it's a binary. It's a yes, no, it's a pass fail. But um, if there's a fumble, then something interesting can happen. If not immediately, then you can just kind of put it in your pocket and save it for later as something else to come, you know, bite them in the butt. And now you're thinking like Star Wars. Uh, I, I want to address Tom's first question, though, which is or one of his first issue, which, again, I, I pushed him on knowing the answer. Um, 
if you, if a care if a player says let me roll for this and they fumble and you become you kind of freeze up because you're you're like oh crap I wasn't ready for this. One of the things I like to do is just put it back on them. So you know they're like I want to uh, break into this guy's garage. Okay, so uh, give me a you know give me a stealth roll. Oh, you know fumble. Well, what happens, man? You know. Make make them figure if it the out. If the thing they say isn't bad enough, then you say, no, 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 that's not bad enough. I need I need worse. And <laughs> make them the, the own masters of their demise. There's a few. So one, either either. So a few things can happen, right? One, they can come up with a, a perfectly acceptable fumble. Great. All right. You set off the alarm. Cool. Uh, or or they can they can lowball you. But when they lowball you, they they tip their hand into what they really didn't want to have happen. Oh, what they're afraid and, of. And, and then you're like, <laughs> oh well, well. You clearly, you know, so if, you know if, if if they don't want if they don't want the alarm to go off and they lowball you with, uh, oh, you know, I, um, you know, uh, I break a window, you know, or I, uh, you know, I, I, I set a jewelry lock and a neighbor starts to see me. Oh yeah, well, and and you set the alarm off, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it gives you something to riff back on them on, which uh, is key. And then you know, I really like what you said about uh, saving things. Uh, I talk a lot about the Star Wars. Edge of the, uh, Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight games, and uh, you can like save up despairs and 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 other bad things, and just slowly trickle them in when the players least need it, and that's a lot of fun. See, I like that one, Kevin, because it's part of the reason why I thought when I was coming up with this, I was thinking that a critical success is actually easier than a fumble, because if you're stuck for something, you can just ask the player, "All right, what do you think would really make your life easy right now?" But this is sort of turning it the other way and just inviting them to kind of control their fate, I guess. And I think most players who play Delta Green, this is a little, a little bit of generalization, but most of them enjoy when things go badly. Most people don't play Delta Green to, to get to level 20 and slay the dragon. So they almost, like a good Delta Green player, Relish has a chance to get their agent into some shit. So if you give them a chance to come up with what happens on a fumble, they're probably going to come up with something really cool. Especially if, if, if they know their character and they're really into it, it'll relate to them. Um, one of the characters that, one of the pre-gen characters that I offered up at the last two conventions, one of their big motivations is not getting caught. And some of the good players, like at all costs, some of the good players who played that uh, in, at that PC, whenever they would fumble, would immediately give themselves a situation where they would like leave a paper trailer, start getting caught, and then it would they would have to then go clean that up because like they won't get cut at any costs. They have to fix this now. It's good. Delt Screen's a game about consequences. So, you know, if, if if even if nothing does come of a fumble like in the moment, go behind your handler's screen, look at your notes where you're keeping notes and keep track of like, you know, uh, major fuck ups or major fumbles for later, right? You know, set alarm off or uh, uh, use their real name when they bought a uh, a rental car, you know, what, whatever it is that you want to focus on for later, because there's, I mean, there's tons of rules in the agent's handbook for, for that, right? I can just see them like they accidentally used a company or agency credit card instead of their personal card to buy something like that. And now someone from the office is calling, hey, why the hell are you here? We thought you were on sick leave or at a funeral or something. Right, yeah, the the official review mechanic from the handbook, it's there. And I don't think I've ever seen that used once. Well, that's because a smart player would never, ever uh, misappropriate uh, government funds for anything, right? Nobody would nobody would ever, ever do that, right? <laughs> no, no one would ever even think of doing such a heinous crime. Uh, this is actually one of the ideas I had for handling fumbles, like... 
We don't do this a lot at NATO because we have kind of a rotating circle of players, so we can't develop anyone's home life too extensively. But if you have a regular circle of players and you're kind of into exploring that side of things, you could have one of the agent's bonds just suddenly butt into their Delta Green business. Like your spouse calls you while you're on a stakeout to say goodnight to the kids or somebody at the office needs uh, you to forward them some kind of file. And it doesn't take too long, but it's just at a really inconvenient moment and it distracts you from whatever you're trying to do. And there's nothing stopping you from just blowing them off. But if you do that, you might lose a point or two from the bond. I remember Dennis or Glancy, I think, um, bringing this up, not this year, but the year before we talked to them at Gen Con. Yeah, sneaking, sneaking through the cult hideout, and then all of a sudden your cell phone rings. Right. I was thinking this would be the way you recre- recreate that sort of moment rather than just having it be GM Fiat. It's like you fumble your stealth roll. Well, you're about to make it all the way across the room, and then you know your ringtone starts blaring at full volume. Something really obnoxious. Plus, we've we've also talked about um, clocks on this. You know, some sort of a something that you can fill up. So, you know, the first fumble maybe isn't that bad, but it makes the stakes higher for the next one or the next one. Um, you know, or maybe the first fumble. You know, maybe in your mind you were only going to make him roll to get into the guy's house, and then they're going to get all the clues inside. Now that they fumbled, now they got to roll for each one. And they can actually maybe destroy some of the clues, you know, that kind of thing. So. Assuming you can communicate that to the players without just explaining that it's a clock. I do love clocks, man. So, like the I, I heard that about you, but maybe I just misunderstood. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I forgot what I was. Gonna, oh yeah, I was talking about clocks. Um, Tom, you mentioned at the beginning that the article you read was about uh, fudging dice rolls. You know, that's where you know uh, uh, GM rolls behind the screen and the players never see the result of the dice roll. So really, it's just whatever the GM wants to happen, right? And sometimes, I you know, you, fudger. you see the... Well, we'll talk about that some other time and why you should or shouldn't do that. But anyways, like when, when uh, the GM starts shaking his dice behind the screen and he rolls them and then he smiles, like everyone at the table gets like really, really nervous, you know? Uh, the same thing can be accomplished by, you know, you, you, you roll a fumble and then uh, on your notebook, you start writing something down and that player's going to get nervous. It's the same thing as if you just, you know, rolled dice behind the, the screen and smiled a little bit. But uh, you could just be doing like a progress clock and they know that you're up to something and they know something's bad. And that's a good way to kind of simulate the stress that an agent might be feeling, knowing that they just you know, either did or didn't do a great job. They don't really know until, you know, everything's all said and done. So your player rolls a fumble. You look at him and you're like, are you, are you wearing armor? How much? Three? Okay. Yeah, yeah man. You, okay, yeah, you, you, uh, yeah. you open the door. What's ne- what's next? They're like, you don't have to do anything. And they, you've, you've, you've put them 100% on tilt with, with just a simple question. Which is good, man. The the high, the higher the stakes, the more fun the game is, really. Uh, but that's that's good. Uh, progress clocks. Um, my my thing about that is that when you port it over from, uh, th- there's really no way to. There is a way to critically fail a roll in like blades, but um, a fumble should like fill up a progress clock in Delta Green if you're uh, if the circumstances are right. Like it should it should either immediately trigger something bad or something bad should absolutely happen like later on down the line. And that backpedal just a little bit because I did want to talk about um, something else that I'd borrow from another game. Um, almost every Powered by the Apocalypse 
game has uh, soft moves and hard moves. I'm just pausing here because I was waiting for Kevin to make like a sex joke or something. I mean, that would be inappropriate and unprofessional, so I would never. This is a family podcast, sir. Clean it up. So like they have um, instead of like a binary degree of success, it's like a trinary, um, I guess. Is that even a word? Uh, anyways, like because you roll 2d6 and then you can get a uh, six or below is like a failure. A uh, seven to nine is a mixed success. And those are, if you think about 2d6 distribution, those are like your more common things. So like a mixed success is like a success with a complication or like uh, if you think about it, like your narrative dice, Kevin, you know, you can have like... It sounds like they ripped off Star Wars, but what? Oh, well, they also don't have to have proprietary dice because you can just use any old D6 you get out of a board game. You but anyways, any die for the Star Wars dice, it's fine. Anyways, and then 10 to 12 is like straight success. Um, so like sometimes with that mixed success, you get what's called a soft move. It's, you know, sort of like a fail forward thing. And I've seen people suggest kind of putting soft moves into Delta Green. It could be something minor like... Uh, losing a piece of equipment you know uh like if you're if you're navigating down a a tunnel you uh have your flashlight and your roll search or alertness or something if a situation calls for rolling of course um and you fall and you drop your flashlight and your flashlight breaks and like you still like moving things forward or maybe you saw a glimpse of something and you it startled you and you uh, drop your flashlight. You know, that's that's like one one thing is take something away from the players to make things more complicated or more interesting. Uh, soft moves are also like a setup. Like you can say, uh, yeah, the guard stands up from his shack and he starts moving around to investigate maybe a noise you made. What do you do? You know, like you put the emphasis back on the players uh, because the game's still got to go forward on a failure, you know? Someone gets hurt is a suggestion. Um, someone gets caught in doing what they were trying to do if they're doing it sneaky. Um, so, but like a, like a critical failure, that should be a hard move. Like serious consequences, triggering a silent alarm and bringing the police in, uh, things like that. Um, I, I know I've talked about this before. Uh, one of the things I do, so there's a, a game, a scenario I wrote where the players, in order to get a clue, that they're absolutely going to get. They have to go to this, guy, old, this old guy's safe house. And while they're there, they're going to have an introduction to the antagonists of the scenario. No matter, like, I don't care what they do, that's, that's, that is going to happen. Now, how it happens varies. If they, if they break in and the alarm goes off, then the antagonist shows up to investigate the alarm. If they break in and they disable the alarm, then the antagonist shows up canvassing for a missing child. You know what I mean? Like, so it doesn't really matter what happens. So you can, you know, if you know that the players need to sneak into this, break into this guy's garage to get the MacGuffin, if they critical fumble, or, you know, if they fumble, they're still going to get it. It's just going to be bad. If they critical succeed, they're just, they're still going to get it. It's just going to be good. And if they make a regular roll, they're just going to get it. It's going to be okay. So you can still get to your, the, point you need to get to it's just a little worse or a little better it sounds like you're describing the the quantum ogre there um does it live in a swamp and listen to smash mouth can neither confirm nor deny so the quantum ogre is Jesus. this um i don't remember where it came from but it's one of those rpg game design blogs oh yeah the guy uh, who did it was named schrodoger no, I, I don't believe it was. This may be a rare circumstance where we are, in fact, not ripping off of the Alexandrian, because I don't think this is on the Alexandrian. I think this is on some other blog. But, yeah, um, I think it, 
it existed before he came around. The quantum ogre kind of summarizes this idea. Put simply, uh, so you're you're running a game for your buddies, and they have the choice of proceeding to the destination by cutting through the creepy woods or going around along the coastline. If they cut through the creepy woods, well, then they fight an ogre. And if they go along the coastline, well, then they also fight the same ogre because that's what you prepared. And the question the quantum ogre poses to the reader is, uh, obviously this conserves GM preparation resources. Does it negate player agency if the outcome is the same no matter what they do? No. The idea is it's basically a railroad with the illusion of choice. Yes. I mean, that's the criticism of it. That is well, that is the, the thought the, the what the thought experiment is 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 asking. Yeah, is is this actually is this a railroad or is this enabling player agency? If they never look at my notes, they're never really gonna know the difference, are they? Well, I mean that's that's the deeper philosophical question is is you know So I think it's it's only a railroad if if that ogre encounter is a fight every time. Uh, they can, no one can expect a, head, in, a dungeon master to create eight thousand different things. So, in if, the thought experiment, it is the same encounter regardless of where they go. Yeah, well, and then that's a thought experiments are dominate them. But if they're going to encounter the ogre no matter what, if they're able to fight the ogre or sneak past the ogre or talk the ogre down or engage him in a battle of thought experiments that are stupid from the internet, then the players have agency. They can do whatever they want. Or they can maybe just like, scout the ogre out and avoid it. But if you're just going to force a fight every time, then if you're just reverting them, then that's bad. And that's where I stand on that. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I feel as though you may have missed the point of the thought experiment. I didn't mean to go to your TED Talk. I was trying to walk into this cave over here find some yeah. treasure, but <laughs> apparently you're holding your TED Talk in a cave. You were, the, always, the real, you were always going to go to my TED Talk. The re, yeah, yeah I, I, I came into this cave for a TED Talk, and all I can see are shadows of the true forms. Oh, nice one. The real TED Talk was the friends we made along the way. Well, at least you know you know nothing, and so that's good. I have known for a long time that you know nothing. <laughs> um, so well, that's not what I said. So, I so what, else, what else do we have for, for fumbles here? So I also like clocks because they kind of tap into another thing I was thinking where when you're designing a scenario, you kind of come up with predetermined effects for a fumble. Like I wrote a shotgun scenario a couple years ago called If Only in My Dreams and the basic thrust of the gameplay is that it's a 90s scenario the players are racing a couple of guys from nro delta to find this missing kid and basically i said to keep things moving quickly anytime the players roll a fumble no matter what the role is for uh the nro guys suddenly catch up to them and arrive in the scene so that keeps them that adds another complication for them to deal with while they're looking for clues. That's that's, cool. that's good. What's that? It's like a um, a tool for getting past writer's block. Is like when you're when you're writing something. Uh, if you're stuck, someone enters the room with a gun. Yeah, exactly. But I was thinking like you could do sort of a similar thing with uh, with a clock. Like just strip out that one line, put a clock in there, and depending on how long it takes the players to find clues like the NRO guys fill in their clock. If they gain a certain number of segments, they suddenly show up in the scene. And then at the end, depending on how full their clock is, maybe they're behind you, you arrive there first, maybe they get there at the same time, or if they've got a full clock, then they actually beat you there. Like, I think we kind of came to the same, uh, we kind of came to a similar approach, just with different mechanics. 
right clock versus uh like i said you know the fumble should be pretty egregious if the circumstances are right and uh sometimes the circumstances are right because you want to speed things up right sort of the thing i was thinking was that the nro guys would have credentials to pass themselves off as fbi guys so wherever they would go they would look official and they would be able to get cops to do whatever they wanted whereas you were just a bunch of random people you didn't have any real authority so suddenly there would be a lot more eyes on you if you were doing something sketchy in the process of performing that fumble, whatever you're trying to do. You know, so now, now that I think about it, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just going to say, so it was something to keep you like, it wouldn't immediately screw you over, but it was a strong encouragement to wrap up whatever you were doing because you didn't really have much more room to navigate here. I I unintentionally did a similar thing in my alphabet contest entry where um, there was a tool that the bad guy was using and the tool was treated as if it had like 99% in the skill. But if you rolled a 100, it was like super fucked up and it like basically like sanity blasted the bad guy. So that changed like the entire course of the whole scenario. You could kind of do the same thing for player character fumbles but that's like a one percent chance of that happening but that also um like if you talk about percentages and stuff tilt screens came about numbers if you look at the average character sheet uh what percentages people start off with if something is 10 percent or you know less like if somehow someone gets like you know one percent in law or one percent in heavy weapons or whatever if anything's less than ten percent when you roll the dice you almost have a greater chance of fumbling than you do for succeeding i think it's yeah i think it's even i think if you've got ten percent in a skill then you are as likely to roll the fumble because you've got all the all the critical numbers except for ought one are above 10 percent and there are instances in a couple of written scenarios where um it'll say use like if you're doing like a group action to use the person with the worst skill rating for that skill so uh there's a potential for some pretty bad fumbles there. Like stealth is one of them. That's pretty common too. You know, some how many times when you're on a Delta Green op do you need a players to be sneaky? Yeah, and we've talked about that in other places. I think that highlights part of my thinking behind this segment was at what point, like at what point do you make a fumble just a really bad blow to the players? Like you're you suffer a big loss, and to what extent is it just a really major complication where you're not immediately hurt by it, but it adds another ball you have to keep in the air or it limits your ability to kind of move around and navigate? I just thought of something else too. Kevin, do you remember when we did the night visions playtest? And there was a moment near the end where someone was driving the vehicle we were all in away. And we kept failing the roll and nothing was happening on the failure. But then someone fumbled and we wrecked. Yeah. Um, that's a little odd because that, that whole combat takes place like on a table. So where you basically need a fumble to have anything, a fumble to have anything bad happen. Um, but yeah, I remember. Does that uh, spark anything here for you? Um, 
Because no. to me, I just remember it feeling like the failures didn't matter at all. And it was basically like rolling to failure, but it wasn't necessarily like a bad thing, you know? It was, we were just, instead of rolling to failure, we were rolling till we fumbled. Rolling to fumble? Yeah. Yeah, rolling and to fumble. There's our episode there's title. title. <laughs> yes. I right, nothing else we got that out of that. That was good. In the Ages Handbook on page 44, there is a list of potential possible consequences um, from a fumble to be used if the handler is drawing a blank. And I don't think any, I've ever seen anyone actually use these, but these are like, these are pretty good. Uh, the ones that it lists, this is under uh, the section on success and failure under how skills work, and it's under the heading for fumbles or it explains what a fumble is. And the examples it gives are as follows. Physical strain, lose 1d6 hit points or temporarily lose 1d4 from strength, con, or dex. Uh, emotional burnout, lose 1d6 willpower or temporarily lose 1d6 from int power or charisma. Alienation, offend an important NPC. All charisma or persuade tests with that NPC automatically fail until the end of the op. Exhaustion, immediately become exhausted. Distraction, suffer a minus 20 penalty to your next test. And confusion, you gain false information. People tend towards that last one on investigative tests, probably without even realizing it's a suggestion in the book. I don't think I've ever seen any of the other ones used. And these are pretty, except for maybe the temporary stat loss, that seems kind of punishing. But distraction, these, uh, distraction stands out to me as a good one. Distraction also stands out to me as probably the best one there, yeah. Distraction is good. I know there are one or two handlers who really like to do the willpower loss on a fumble. Like it's just mentally training. Shane does that all the time. That is one that I've seen once or twice. I don't really like exhaustion as a mechanic, so I don't like that one in particular. I think that should probably just be a consequence of willpower loss. Yeah, exhaustion is also pretty punishing. In fact, exhaustion is actually distraction, but worse. Yeah, it's because it's ongoing and continuous. Yeah, because it's ongoing for like the rest of the in-game day. And it also means you're going to fail your sand tests. You're going to fail all your skill checks. Exhaustion is super, super punishing. Hey, you know, uh, I would. I mean, I wouldn't totally discount it though. There's probably some situations in a game where exhaustion should be a thing. You know, like, yeah. um, you know, if, if you're doing like a survival horror type thing, stranded in the Canadian wilderness per se. Oh, so like ninety percent of the country. Yeah, aren't you just exhausted all the time? Oh, all the time, especially in the winter when the sun rises for like three hours. Spends twenty three hours a day running from moose. Yes. There was a moose on the Anthony Henday, the highway that goes around uh, Edmonton a couple, a couple of weeks back. It's across the highway. See? Your civilization means nothing to these creatures. Moose are fucking terrifying. I'm going to write an epic scenario about moose. It will, moose? You know, like, you know why Canadian, Canadian, geese, Canadian geese are so angry and hateful? Can I? Uh, like, why? Because that's atypical of a Canadian. Well, I realize that every Canadian is assigned a, a goose on, on birth, and all of their hate and anger goes into the goose. Who told you about that? Who told you know, me about that? Yes. That's that's a good explanation for that uh, untitled goose game. It's yes. just what Canadians would do if they could get away with it. Yeah, except it's not a Canada goose. It's not. No, it's not. Have you ever seen a Canada goose, Jake? No, uh, I'm afraid that I've never that. been to Canada before. So, so <laughs> you live like, way too far south. Jeez, their necks are black. Is one of the distinguishing features. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I've seen pictures then. Yeah, that one, that one in the Untitled Goose Game is just a regular old goose. 
Although he has the attitude of a can of goose. Uh, so that table or that list there that's in the handbook, that's good. Handlers should be able to make up a few. Can you guys think of anything else that's cool? Like uh, like what's on that list? The ones that's in the agent's handbook? A what for penalties for stuff? Like, yeah, well, if you fumble uh, another penalty or um, complication or whatever. Because it seems like these are, you know, they're meant to simulate uh, hardship that you're suffering because you fumbled your role. I think you could probably get away with like on a fumble it takes twice as long for whatever you were trying to do in the same way that a critical success is supposed to be half the time for whatever you're trying to do. That's I can good. see that. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I don't know why they didn't do a luck thing. They really love luck mechanics everywhere else in the game. So like could be like a luck test to whether or not you get caught doing whatever you're doing or whether or not like an egregious complication comes. Um, Cause that, if you look in the, the text for the agent's handbook and the paragraph that precedes this list, it says a fumble in a car or a fumble in a car chase means you crash. But like people are going to die because of that. You should at least, you know, <laughs> throw something else in. So it's not like a straight binary between life and death. Right, that's sort of, that's sort of what I was thinking of again. Like, okay, so is that just like a? It's ten percent lethality for every twenty-five miles per hour you going when you crash the car. So, is that just a straight ten percent lethality roll, or do people get like some kind of dex roll to get out of the car? Or you know, that's when you have to start asking people, "Do you have your seatbelts on?" Be honest. Yes. Of course, everybody has their seatbelt on. <laughs> Roll intelligence to see if you remember to put your seatbelt on or if you were too badass. I'll tell you, if a player's a cop, they probably don't have their seatbelt on because uh, cops tend to not wear their seatbelts. Unless you get into a pursuit, generally that's when they'll put that on because they know they're going to be driving high speed or whatever. Um, I'd never violate policy for anywhere that I worked. I'd always wear my seatbelt. Good save, Jake. <laughs>